We are getting to the very end of our series in Proverbs, and uh, after a couple of weeks of things that really spoke to nations and to cultural issues, now we are getting back into uh, some personal wisdom, you might say. And in Proverbs 30, specifically, uh, wisdom for living, wisdom for how do we approach our life and how do we view our life. This is a a beautiful chapter that is not uh, ascribed to Solomon, but rather to a man named Agur, of whom we know nothing about uh, other than this chapter of Proverbs. And it it is a poetic beautiful chapter that is, uh, it's more art, I would say, than a lot of the other ones. A lot of the other ones, you know, they're very clear and they're very, they're hitting on different ideas. This one is kind of more of something to be experienced and, and just a, it's a way of viewing the world and ourselves in it. So I, I strongly encourage you this week to read through all of Proverbs 30 because we're not going to have time to do the whole chapter justice. We're just going to look at the first nine verses as the, the introduction to the rest of the chapter. But it will still give you a good feel for the way that Agur looks at the world and how he sees his life in it and our lives as well. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 30. And we're going to look at just the first nine verses of it. And uh, we'll, we'll just go through and take them each in stride. Verse 1 tells us that this uh, chapter, the, these Proverbs that are coming to us, are the words of Agur, son of Jacheh, the oracle. So his, his proclamation that he is saying. The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. And uh, we're not really quite sure what that actually means. Is he declaring something to two men, one man being Ithiel and the other man being Ukal? It's possible Ithiel is actually a name in the book of Nehemiah of one of the men who is helping to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So Ithiel could be uh, a name here, which is how the New American Standard has translated it. That's why it's the man declares to Ithiel and Ukal. Ithiel as a name uh, potentially means with me is God. Um, Here's the funny thing, though. When you go to the Septuagint, which uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then you had the Jewish people who were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world during the time of the Greek Empire. And so when the Romans took over, they just took over the Greek Empire. And so the New Testament is written in Greek, not Latin, even though the Romans were in charge, because everybody throughout the known world that was intelligent, and, and by that I mean schooled, they could read and write, uh, they wrote, read and wrote in Greek. And so uh, if a Jewish person was communicating with a Roman person and the Jew speaks Aramaic and the Roman speaks Latin, they could communicate through Greek. They would both know Greek. And so what happened is because you had all these Jews throughout the world, uh, the, they, the scholars ended up deciding to translate the Old Testament, what, what we consider to be the Old Testament. They just considered it Scripture. You know, they had their, their Scriptures translated into Greek because you had a lot of these pockets of Jewish people living in Greece and Italy and Turkey. 
that didn't speak Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And so they translated it into Greek. And in fact, a lot of times, if you're ever wondering why Paul quotes something from the Old Testament and it doesn't match what our Old Testament says, that's because he wasn't using the Hebrew. He wasn't using ours. He was using, most likely, the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this verse says, uh, the man speaks to the ones trusting in God. And now I will cease. And that's, that's quite a departure from Ithiel to Ithiel and Ukel. And, and so that's one of those things where we kind of wonder what is truly going on. A, a suggestion is that maybe Ithiel is actually a word that means to be weary. And Ukal is actually a word that means uh, I'm exhausted. You know, Ukal uh, comes from roots that mean to eat. But it's possible, you've got to understand, because Hebrew, uh, in, the, in, the, in the copies that we have, that we're translating it from, they didn't have vowels. Uh, translators add vowels to it. So the translators are making a lot of decisions on what's going on here and what word does this really mean. Not only that, but all the words get scrunched together. So you have to know all the words and, and separate them in your mind. Can you imagine if we wrote, if you were to write a letter where you threw out all the vowels, you just had continents, and then you didn't even have spaces in between the words, you just crammed all the words together, and you didn't have sentence endings like periods or exclamation points, and you were supposed to read that and understand what was meant? That's the way it was back then. And so it's possible that what's really happening here, that we have translated it as Ithiel, Ithiel and Ucal, but maybe, and this, this actually makes sense in the context, if Ithiel is a word that means uh, to be weary, and if Ucal is a word that means closer to be exhausted, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary and exhausted. I, uh, I am tired of life, kind of, just like uh, the man speaks to the ones trusting in God. Now I will cease. That idea of cease or to be exhausted, to be <laughs> completely done. He says, I've gotten to the end of it. I am tired. And, and that could fit. That could fit with what's going on here. Because he says in verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. This is, this is the wisdom declaration of Agur. I am more stupid than any man. In, in other words, and, and the word stupid there means uh, beastly. It, it's the idea of I am as dumb as cattle. I am more stupid. I am more like the, the dumb beast of the field than any man out there. I do not have the understanding of a man. Now, is this true? No, because if it was true, we wouldn't listen to him, would we? We wouldn't read it and put it into a book of wisdom if he was truly this stupid and have lack of understanding. What he is saying, though, is that he has reached the end of his abilities and he is recognizing that he really doesn't have much knowledge, that there is knowledge that is beyond him, that there are things that he just cannot understand. And in fact, a, a healthy portion of Proverbs chapter 30 is three things I do not understand four are, that are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. It's this pattern that he has where he lists four things. And he'll say, three things are too beautiful for me, four I cannot comprehend. You know, it's, it's this idea of there are things out there with all of my thinking, with all of my study, with all of my time 
that all I can do is just sit back and marvel at how wonderful it is. Do you ever, do you ever get to that point where you've studied something and you just don't understand it? I, I, it doesn't take me long to get there. I, I, I go on a walk and there are clouds and I, I'm there. I don't understand them. They are too marvelous for me. I just get to sit back and enjoy that there is such a thing as clouds in the sky, that somehow they float and yet water comes out of them and the water just comes flying down because the water is too heavy. But for some reason when it's up there, it's not too heavy. And, I, and it's just marvelous to me how they work. And that's, that's the way Agur is thinking. When he says, I am more stupid than any man, I do not have the understanding of a man, that's what he is getting at, that there are some things that are just too marvelous for me. And then in verse 3, he says, neither have I learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. And, and that hopefully puts us in mind of Proverbs 9.10. Because fear uh, <clears throat> is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understand, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, excuse me, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, here he says, I have not learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. I am not there. This thing that early on in the book of Proverbs was, was listed to us as this is the beginning of wisdom. This is, is understanding, to have knowledge of the Holy One, to fear the Lord. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm striving for these things, but I have not obtained them. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. What is, what is Agur saying in these two verses, two, verse 2 and verse 3, as he's, as he's to the end of his studies, he, he's, he's sharing with other people his wisdom, and, and he's basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I've studied so much, I've learned so much, I've grown so much, I figured out I'm pretty stupid. I, I have studied so much, I have figured out I really don't understand. I love that. I, I don't know about you, but there is nothing more insufferable than somebody who knows it all and thinks they know it all. Because they can't be taught anything. A truly wise person realizes how little they know. If anything, the more we grow in our knowledge, the more we recognize just how much we don't know. It's, it's very similar to the, the image given to us of heaven in, in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, where the, the, the people are, are entering into heaven and it just keeps getting bigger. The deeper they go, the wider it gets, and the bigger it gets. And that's, that's life with God, and that's life with wisdom and knowledge, that we think we know something, and as soon as we get there, we find out that there is so much more we don't know about it. And there's so much more to learn. And, and that's what Agur is saying. And, and, and the thing that we are looking for in, in wise people is somebody who is humble in their wisdom. Somebody who says, you know, I've learned so much. There's things out there I don't know, you know. There, there are things out there that I can't comprehend. There are things out there I, I've studied and I've tested it and I've discovered I just don't know. That is a person that you can go to for wisdom. 
That is a person who you can go to because they have, they have wrestled with it and they are humble enough to acknowledge when they don't know things. That they are humble enough to recognize that there, are, there is knowledge that is beyond them. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll talk to a person and it doesn't seem to matter what we're talking about. They have an idea about it or they have secret knowledge about it. or you know, They have to prove how smart they are in just about everything. And half the time I'm like, I don't, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I haven't studied that. I don't know. I'll have to take your word for it. What we see here in Proverbs 30 is that the wisest people know they don't know. The wisest people know they know that that there are things that they don't know. And I've already gone past Proverbs 9.10. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, we're already to that point. Um, There are people that, that... recognize I don't know and and, and the wisest people know that they really don't know that that they have grown in knowledge yes but as we as we grow in knowledge in an area we find out there's bigger things about it you know it's kind of like math math can be very simple one plus one is two and then all of a sudden you're introduced to fractions and now there's stuff in between 1 plus 1 equals 2. And, and then you get introduced to integers. And what's an integer? Oh, it's just another name for a number. But we had to specify because now we can also get into negative numbers. And then we'll make up numbers and we'll just throw in a letter for that number. And all of a sudden you find out there is more to math than you thought. That's wisdom. You think, oh, it's so simple. One plus one equals two. And then you grow in your knowledge and you find out, oh, fractions. And then you grow in your knowledge, oh, negative numbers. And you grow in your knowledge and you grow in your knowledge and you grow in your knowledge and then you realize there is so much more out there. The wisest people know they don't know. The wisest people are willing to accept the fact that they don't know. And they're willing to live in that space of there are limits to my knowledge. That's what Agur is saying. He continues with this kind of a thought that, you know, I don't have knowledge of the the Holy One. He continues it in verse 4 when he says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Now, this should evoke memories of God's questioning to Job. Where were you when I created the world? Can you do this? Can you do that? Did you see this? Do you have knowledge of that? And by the end of it, Job's like, I'm just going to be quiet. I've opened my mouth once. I'm not going to do it again. But what is he saying here? He's saying, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has knowledge of the Holy One first-hand knowledge. Who has actually seen it and come back to tell us about it? Who has gathered the wind in his fist that he can gather it up and hold on to it? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment as if we even could? But what he is talking about is that there are things that are vastly beyond us. Who has established the ends of the earth? Who has measured them and counted them and determined that this is where it ends? 
The question, what is his name and his son's name, is a question of identity. Who is he and who is his son? Similar to who is he and who is his father. The idea is establishing a person. Who is he? Who is his son? But for us as believers, this should really just be like neon sign God and Jesus. Because what is he saying? Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Well, that's Jesus. You know, Paul talks about that he has ascended. And what does it mean that he ascended? But that first he descended. That he has come from heaven, he has shown us the Father, and he has returned. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? That God is the one who has control over the wind. That he is the one who uh, can wrap the, gar- the waters in his garments. That he has control over the seas. That he is the one who has established the earth and all that is within it. And it's amazing that in, in the context of this, because Agur, he's basically saying only God. I mean, it's, it, these are rhetorical questions that, it, that beg an answer of only God. So it's amazing that he would say, what is his name? Or his son's name. It's one of those things that is in Scripture from the Old Testament that points to the truth that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is true. Just like when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about David and the son of David and that David wrote in a psalm saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down while I make... The enemy, your enemy is a footstool. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, if, if the Messiah is the son of David, how does David call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. It's one of those sayings that points that the Messiah is more than just the descendant of David. He is the son of God. He is greater than David. And similar here, what is his name or his son's name? The answer for us as believers is his name is God, Yahweh. His son's name is Jesus. He alone has the wisdom of the world. He alone knows the established boundaries of the world. He alone has control over the wind and over the waves. And we see this with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when he says, Peace, be still, and the wind stops and the waves die down. Who has such control? Who has such knowledge? Only God has true knowledge. Agur says, I don't have understanding. I don't have wisdom. I don't have knowledge of the Holy One. Who does? Only God has true knowledge. Jesus, of all the people who have ever walked on the earth, only Jesus truly knows God. Because He is God. And He and the Father are one. And so wisdom tells us that that those who are wise realize that they don't know that much. But not only that, a wise person knows who has the wisdom, recognizes who has true knowledge, God. So a, a wise person acknowledges God's sovereignty. A wise person recognizes, I don't know that much, but I know who does. Talking about God's knowledge, he says in verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Every word of God 
is tested. It means every word of God is proven to be true. It's refined and shown to be good. It has been put through the, the meat grinder and shown to be true. It has outlasted all of the tests that it has endured. Every word of God is proven to be good and true. And God Himself is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. He protects them. Those that would take refuge in Him, that would hide themselves in God because His Word is true. Verse 6 continues the idea of His words by saying, do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Now, notice He doesn't say, do not add or take away. It's just, do not add to His words. Ordinarily, and in other places, we would see don't add or take away. A lot of times what happens is that people who believe in God will add to His words, but people who don't believe in God will take away from His words. So, for instance, you have Thomas Jefferson who uh, did not allow himself to believe in miraculous things, and so he cut them out of his Bible. Because he did not believe in miracles. He took away from God's words. And we a lot of times we'll focus on people who take away from his words. Oh, Jesus is a, a good teacher. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I can tell you that. Oh, I'll, I'll listen to you know, the, the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you. But then they're not going to listen to I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, he's a good teacher. And yet when he taught... You must believe in me. They don't want to listen. That's taken away from God's word. Proverbs 30, verse 6 doesn't talk about taking away. Just about adding. Do not add to his words. The the admonition here is that we should not do anything extra with God's word. We shouldn't add to them extra meaning that is not already there. This is something that generally happens by people who profess faith in God. We believe His Word, and then we want to take His Word to places where it does not go. We want to beef it up. We want to make it do more than He has declared it will do. And He says, do not add to His words. Just just take His words as they are. Let them be as they are. It kind of reminds me of Jesus, or not Jesus, excuse me. It reminds me of God's instructions for the people of Israel on building an altar. You know, What do we want to do as human beings? We want to make things glorious, don't we? We want to make them pretty. We want to make them shine. We want to make them flashy so that they are better. And and that's what you've got. Over throughout the the world, you've got, especially in South America and Central America, you've got pyramids where the altar was on top and there's a flat area on the top where they would do the sacrifices. And that's our way of doing things. We're going to build a tower. We're going to make something so tall, everybody can see it. We're going to make a name for ourselves. But what did God say? He said, when you build an altar, don't elevate it. Build it on the ground. And when you build an altar, just find rocks and put them together. Don't cut them. He didn't want them to shape the rocks in any way. And he didn't want them to build up a mound and put the altar on top. Just put it on the ground. Use the rocks the way they are. 
simple. Just use the materials I've already made. Use them the way I've made them. Use the ground where it's at. Use the rocks as they are. Build your altar and worship me. Don't profane my name by trying to add to me my glory. This is why God says don't make any images of God. Don't, whether, whether it's something on the ground or in the air or in the sea, don't make an image. Because there is no way that we can make anything that comes close to the glory of God. He has made His image. He is, Jesus is the image of the firstborn. But God has also made His image by making humanity. He has made an image for Himself. And He tells us, don't do it. Because we can't come close to making it. Don't add to His words. Don't try to say that his, that his words are going to be more than what He has already said, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. That's not a good thing. And what, he's, what He's saying is, take God's Word as it is. Don't add to it. Don't try to make it do anything more than it can. Just let it be. If that's what God has said, God has said enough. We don't need to add anything to it. We don't have to say, well, it means this, or it means this extra thing, or it can do this other thing. Just take His Word as it is. And this is the way we're supposed to take God. Every Word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. We take refuge in God as He is. We, we, we take Him as He is. The, the Jews, what did they see when they saw Jesus? They, they said, what's wrong with Him? He's not the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to kick the Romans out of Israel. The Messiah is supposed to establish our nation again. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. I've come to, for, to give you forgiveness of your sins. He came to them on a donkey, not a war horse. A lot of times we struggle to accept God the way He is. To accept Jesus the way He is. What Agur is telling us here, uh, we don't have the knowledge. We know that God does. So as we come to His Word, we know that His Word is true, that He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And so don't add anything. Don't. Just accept Him. In other words, trust God. Have faith in God and trust what God has declared. If you've ever tried to share your faith with somebody and you felt like they just weren't getting it, you can be tempted to try to change what Jesus has done to make it something that they will accept. And he's saying, don't do that. Just trust what God, what God has declared. He is a refuge, and His words are, are proven to be true. So trust Him. Take Him at His word. If God has said something and, and our you know, our senses tell us no, but God's Word has told us yes. Believe His Word over your senses. Because He is true and we're not. We don't really know everything. We can't see everything. And so there may be things going on that, that we don't know about, that we don't see. And we think, well, God's not working in my life right now. God is allowing this thing to fail. God is not allowing me to to have the success I want in this area of my life. But we don't know. He is 
he's working his plan. He is operating in us and through us and for us. So we need to just trust him. Trust what he has declared. Trust his words. Take refuge in him and trust that he knows all about the world and we really don't have true understanding. Only God has true knowledge. Just trust him as we go through life. That's what Agur is saying here with verse 4 and then 5 and 6 combined to that. And, and then we, we truly get into the, the introduction for the rest of the chapter in verse 7. He says, Two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. This is a very poetic language. You know, don't refuse me before I die. Really what he's saying is, you know, allow me to have this in my life. Allow this to be a part of my life. Don't refuse these things for me before I meet my end. Allow me to allow this to be the way I live my life. Now there's some question about what are these two things that he has asked. Verse 8 tells us, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. So there's basically three statements in there. Which ones are the two? Is is keep deception and lies from me one of the, the first thing that he's asked? And then give me neither poverty nor riches, the second? What's going on here? What is Agur saying in this verse? He he says, two things I ask, don't refuse me before I die. I I, I believe that verse 8, keep deception and lies far from me. I've I've often read that and and generally read that as being the first thing. But it, it is very possible that what he's really saying there is just, let me be truthful in life. Keep Deception and lies far from me. Let, let me operate in truth. Not be self-deceiving, not to deceive others. Let me operate in the truth. Give me the truth in life. And then give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me. Feed me with the food that is my portion. What is allotted to me? He says, don't give me too much and don't give me too little. Give me, allow me to have, feed me with that which is allotted to me, my portion. Literally what has been written down for me. Let me have just that. Why? He says in verse 9, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. He he says, I I want just to be fed with my portion. I don't want too much. I don't want too little. Because if I have too much, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? I may be so confident in what I have, my material possessions, that I'll forget you. That I will treat you as not being part of my success. He says, but on the other hand, if I don't have enough to live, well, I may, I may stoop so low as to commit crime. I might steal. I might, I might behave in such a way because I don't have enough and I rely upon myself. I may go about trying to achieve my goals in my own way to steal. And by doing that, I would profane your name. That, that I would, I, I as a person who follow God, would drag your name through the dirt and the mud. 
Now, it's poetic language. It's artistic language. But the idea, the idea is very true. We know people who do so well, they really don't spend much time trusting in God. They don't seem to have the need to trust in God. And, and, and then there are also other people who are struggling so much that they think, I need to take care of this in my own way. I need to take care of this with my own hands. And, may, and it doesn't have to be you know, breaking a piece of glass and stealing somebody's money to steal and profane the name of the Lord. That could be just a person who's in want, so they take some shortcuts. A person who's in want, so maybe they mistreat other people to get ahead. Now what, what's really going on in this verse, notice, besides just the, the, the uh, inclusio of, of you know, these extremes of being so poor I'm stealing or so rich I'm denying God, what's his primary focus? What's his primary motivation? I don't want to live in such a way that I deny you and say, who is the Lord? And I don't want to live in such a way that I profane your name. I don't want to bring dishonor to your name, God. But instead, allow me, as he said in verse 8, allow me to be fed with the food that is my portion. Let me have what I need to survive so that I don't deny you and I don't dishonor you. His focus is, let me live in such a way, let me have enough, but not too much, so that I glorify you in how I live. And and that's the key. Some people in life might need more money, some people can get by with less money. Overwhelmingly, the focus here is, how do we live so that we can glorify God? Do we, as we look at life and as we look at the way we live and the jobs we take and the the things we do, is our motivation getting ahead? Is our motivation ease and enjoyment? Or is our motivation the glory of God? What Agur is saying is, is what he desires in life is to live in such a way that he can glorify God, that, that he won't Uh, deny God by being so full of himself, thinking he's so smart, thinking he's so successful, he's so great. But also he, he wants to make sure that he doesn't get so desperate that he thinks, I've got to solve this on my own. How do you go through life? How do you view your life? Do you, do you desire a life that enables you to glorify God? That's what Agur is telling us to do, to desire a life that enables you to glorify God. And whatever that may be. It's not so much the don't make me rich, don't make me poor. It's his greater desire is that he would glorify God. That, that you, he would not have deception and lies in his life. Keep that away from him. This is the way he wants to live. He just wants to glorify God. And so he says, Lord, help me figure out. Allow me to to have enough that I glorify you and I don't profane you. That I don't deny you, but I proclaim you to everyone. Help me to live that kind of life. And so that, that, you know, in, in, in our day and age, I can think that there are a lot of things that people can fill their lives up with. 
that, that might keep them from glorifying God. And it, it can be, you know, one person can have certain possessions and glorify God with them. Another person can have those same possessions and not glorify God with them. The issue is not what possessions we have. The issue is not how much wealth or how much poverty we have. The question is, how can we live in such a way that we glorify God with our lives? Am I able to do it with those possessions I have? Do I have possessions in my life that keep me from glorifying God? Are there things that I have, things that I do, that keep me from glorifying Him? That's Agur's primary focus. And the question for us today is, do we even desire that kind of a life? Do we think to ourselves, how do I want to live? Do I, that I want to live in such a way that I glorify God. That I'm not denying Him. I'm not um, profaning His name. Literally doing damage to His name. But honoring Him. That is, that is true wisdom for living. Recognizing, oh, I don't know it all. But I know God does. And I trust in His name. I trust in His word. I trust what He has proclaimed. Therefore, I'm going... And really, uh, a focus on, on the word of God in verse 6, not adding to His words or he, you'll be reproved. And then the focus on verse 9, that I not be full and deny you and that I not be in want and steal. Both of them have the idea of being content. Being content with what God has declared being content with what God has blessed you with in your life. Are we content with the Lord? Are we willing to trust Him that He be glorified in our lives? Is that what we seek? That's what Agur is calling for and asking for in his life. That is, that is a wise way to live. To trust in the Lord. And to seek to live in such a way, not that I have as much as the Joneses next to me, because I'm not trying to keep up with the Joneses. My focus needs to be, am I glorifying God with what I have? Am I glorifying God with what I don't have? Am I glorifying God in my life today? That's the question for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You give us wisdom and that you show us how little we truly know. We thank you, Father, that you have established the world. That you can control the winds and you control the waves. That you have knowledge of heaven and earth. That you see far beyond what we can see. That your knowledge is supreme. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us through your Son and through your Word. That you have given us uh, knowledge of You. Not perfect knowledge, not complete knowledge, but enough. And there are so many questions we have, Lord, and we pray that in those questions that we would trust You. In those areas of doubt, Lord, that we would trust You. That we would believe You. That we would stand firm on Your Word. And Lord, we pray as we look at our lives, that we would ask ourselves, are we living for Your glory? Are the things that we seek because they praise You? Or are the things that we seek 
maybe the things that we can use to replace You as the joy of our lives, as the security of our lives, as the hope for our lives. Father, we pray that we would seek to live a life that glorify You. We ask in Jesus' name.